It was truly incredible and just marked an amazing moment for a group of four black women to be part of that legendary festival with the message that we were bringing full on confronting the origins of white supremacy and to be able to talk about that and be able to use music to disarm people to really try to start that process of healing all around for all of us. It was really special. That's Amethyst Kia, who performed at Newport in 2019 as part of Our Native Daughters with Rhiannon Giddens, Allison Russell, and Layla McCalla. Their music addresses America's history of racism and misogyny with songs that are at once uplifting and celebratory, tragic and painful. Their mission of spreading the perspectives of black women from the time of slavery through the present found a passionately engaged audience at Newport. This is part of a long lineage of artists performing songs of protest and calls for social justice and a founding principle of Newport's organizers to fight for and embody a more inclusive and equitable world for us all. I'm Carmel Holt. Today, we explore how Newport has, since its beginning, been a space where artists, organizers, and fans have gathered to create and experience a space where intolerance, injustice, and hate give way to love, mutual respect, and equality. We'll hear from members of the Folk family about how, at its outset, the fierce commitment to racial equality and the platform for so-called radical ideals of Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie laid the groundwork for its decades-long tradition of providing a home for diverse lineups, perspectives, and ideas. And how, in turn, the experience of being at the festival continues to provide those who attend with inspiration and energy to take those positive forces outside of the walls of Fort Adams and remind us of our connectedness and humanity. Welcome to episode four of Festival Circuit Newport Folk. Surround hate and force it to surrender. As Amethyst Kia just shared, the inclusion of Our Native Daughters at Newport Folk gave her and her bandmates a platform to shed light on the history of white supremacy and inequality in America that continues to plague our society. We'll hear more from her and her collaborators throughout today's episode. That conversation and spirit of activism is one that began at Newport in its earliest days. At both the jazz and folk festivals, George Ween and his collaborators made sure that artists from all backgrounds were represented facing down the outright racism, anti-Semitism, and challenges that they met along the way. Here's George. I think all we can do, and any of us can do, is influence the people around us. When we first went to Newport, they didn't want some of our African-American musicians. We really had a problem with some of them. And I had to find uh, hotels or beds in private homes for some of our guests. After a few years, they elected a black man mayor in Newport. And uh, I remember when uh, a woman in the in St. Uh, Michael's Parish, the minister had allowed us to use land there to do our workshops for the folk festival. And one of the parishioners called her, the minister said, how can you do business with those Jews and niggers? You know? And uh, he just made that the uh, subject of his sermon on Sunday and changed the whole church. So these little things can may have meaning. You have to keep working at it. And maybe you can affect the people around you and help those people learn that life doesn't have to be one of hatred and disliking people. 
George Wien and his wife Joyce were married in 1959. At that time, laws that would have prohibited their marriage as a white man and a black woman were still active in at least 22 states in the Union. As George told us in episode two, he was no stranger to anti-Semitism and bigotry in his own life. And as he just shared, this continued as he was establishing the folk and jazz festivals and became one half of an interracial couple. Joyce left her career as a biochemist to work with George in the early 60s. And her work at Newport, along with George's insistence on creating a space where people from different backgrounds were treated equally and shared the festival side by side, helped to provide an opportunity to create a more unified culture amongst everybody at Newport, including the musicians themselves. I remember one of the Southern artists that came up and said, you know, I never met anybody like your wife. I said, she's one of the great ladies I've ever met. He was a Southerner. He had never met anybody. Like, never gave himself a chance to meet anybody. So he finally met somebody. We brought up the Sacred Harp Singers from Alabama. They were an all-white group of just local people. They weren't public entertainers. They were like the druggists from the corner and the... The doctor, the lawyer, and their wives in sacred harp music. And uh, we brought the Georgia Sea Island singers. We were all together at the festival. And we had one bus for the two groups of people. And all these white sacred harp singers were sitting on the bus when the black artist from Georgia Sea Island came on the bus. Bessie Jones was the leader of the Georgia Sea Island singers. She, she, don't you know the road? Yes, I know the road. She, she, don't you know the road? Yes, I know the road. And she came on and was looking for a seat. And one of these gentlemen from Alabama stood up to give Bessie Jones the seat. And that just completely affected everyone in that bus and everyone that heard this story. Because then all the ladies, the gentlemen all stood up to give the ladies the seats. And this is the kind of world that we were creating at the Newport Folk Festival. It was absolutely a utopia of what the world could be a utopia of what the world could be. Again, if you checked out episode two, you'll recall that George Ween helped to start the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival in 1970 by joining forces with Sandra and Alan Jaffe, taking the idea and the ideals of the Newport Festivals to New Orleans. The idea for the Jazz and Heritage Festival actually dates back to the early 1960s, and the reason it took so long to come to fruition can be found in George's unwillingness to stray from his ethics and ideals. Here's Ben Jaffe. George helped our city, like my parents, break through its racial divide. And that's a very important thing that doesn't get recognized or even discussed is because the attention is always on the on the artists and, and, and what's happening on stage. What George had to, to go through to allow Jazz Fest to happen in New Orleans, we're talking about, you know, shortly after or during the civil rights movement and the passage of the civil rights amendments in 64. And even with the passage of those amendments, the city wasn't fully integrated. Hotels weren't integrated, restaurants weren't integrated. So George's position was, 
I can't have a festival or be involved in a festival where Dizzy Gillespie or Duke Ellington or Mahalia Jackson or Louis Armstrong, your own native son, have to stay in different hotels than their white counterparts. Benny Goodman's going to play or Dave Brubeck's going to play at this event, then Miles Davis and uh, Richie Havens, they're going to stay in the same hotels and they're going to eat in the same restaurants. And he positioned that to the city. And it was one of the factors that sped up the integration of the city. And that's something that I recognize, something my parents recognized and you know, spoke about to me is how the Jazz Fest and the road leading up to the beginning of Jazz Fest was one of the the factors in, in helping to, to speed up the integration of New Orleans. He was creating something new. He was bringing people together in a way that had never been done before. And if you weren't, you know, with it and part of the movement, it could be very threatening. We're getting at the... Um, the, the center of, of racism and how most racism uh, comes from fear. I would believe that most of our disagreements come from fear. But look at what's been achieved. That's what's truly amazing. Newport, Jazz Fest, these are festivals that celebrate the African-American history of this country. You know? And that's one of the bitter pills that we all have to live with throughout our life is, you know, without this you know, very painful history that our country has has uh, been responsible for, the, the kidnapping of, of humans from Africa and enslaving them in this country. And from this pain, we have this incredible experience and this incredible music that we all feel blessed to somehow have in our life to whatever degree. That's the sense of service that I've always felt with uh, someone like George or, or my parents. Yes, this is a career and yes, this is a job, but it's a, it, it's a sense of being in service to something greater than yourself. And that's something that I've, I carry with me. This principle, you know, that we're, we're not here to serve ourselves, we're here to serve it, <laughs> to serve this, whatever, whatever it is, whatever thing it is that that you're in service to and we can lose sight of that but we we need people like george in the world to remind us of that we need places and things like newport and jazz fest and preservation hall to remind us why we do what we do none of us chose this path because it was easy none of us said oh man i'm going to make a fortune in the music business <laughs> it was it was i am being called to do this and I am hearing the call and I am receiving the call, I'm answering the call over and over again. That's the conversation that I have with musicians is how, how much they, I wouldn't use the word sacrifice because it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. It just feels like we are sharing something that's somehow, some way we received 
and now we're sharing this beauty with, with everyone else. That's part of the community that George, George has built and something at the center of Newport is it's a community based on on these sort of ideals and these principles. Those ideals and principles of equality are still very much on display at Newport Folk. And as NPR's Bob Boylan explains, they run so deep that they've become woven into the very fabric of the festival itself. I mean, I think it's a magnet for uh, a lot of the artists who I love that the politics of acceptance is just in their DNA. And so that's part of the camaraderie that happens. Uh, a few years ago when they did the, uh, the theme, uh, A Change Is Gonna Come, you had uh, John Batiste and Mavis Staples, Dap Kings, uh, Leon Bridges. One day morning, when this life is over, I'll fly And I remember the Preservation Hall and Mavis doing Freedom Highway, which is a song that I knew from working in record stores and stuff. Uh, and I didn't remember it and know exactly what it was all about, but, but it was a song from the Staple Singers, which obviously Mavis was a family member. And it was a, a song about voting rights in 1965 and the march to Selma. And I think the song came out originally in 1965. And I, I think the beauty of Newport is it doesn't hit you over the head with that stuff. It's just so deep in the DNA that it's just there. And it's kind of beautiful. And being that that feels well with the politics of my life, I find uh, the people and the crowd and the things that it gathers and the attraction is very comfortable and up my alley. And I, and I like it like a whole lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little world that you live in for a weekend that you wish you could have more often. For the women of Our Native Daughters, the embrace of the Newport community and its history as a supportive space for artists of color made it an extra meaningful place to end their one and only tour to date in 2019. And as we'll hear, it also highlighted an ongoing opportunity to continue to build on and develop even greater access to that space for more artists and audience members from all backgrounds and identities. Here's Layla McCalla. It's a different thing, you know, I think that we're holding space for and and also the subject matter you know it's like it's not like we're going on stage and singing lullabies we're like digging into like the, the deep heart of darkness in our society and trying to bring light to it oh, you put the shackles on our feet but we're dancing You know, so yeah, it was amazing to have space for that at Newport. And also, I have like certain conflicted feelings about the experience in some ways, because I remember looking at the post and it's like, Odetta, Mississippi John Hurt, you know, staple singers, all these, you know, pinnacles of, of folk music. And we're like one of the only black groups. 
Rhiannon Giddens. The early Newports, like where we had all of those black folk singers, but you know, the way that the music is marketed has been white, you know what I mean? So it's just like, how do we expand the access? How do we expand the education and the knowledge? And it has to start with us coming together and making a record. And changing the culture, yeah. It's also interesting to reflect on, you know, what happened in our society since that performance, you know? We didn't know that we were gonna be headed into a pandemic and there was gonna be this whole, you know, Black Lives Matter was already happening, but to see it really kind of become this mainstream concept. And so there, you know, it was like great that Newport is holding the space for us. And then at the same time, I felt there's more work to be done here, you know? Amethyst Kia. Yeah. I feel like the Newport audience is a little more in tune with things, it, it seems. Yeah. So open. Allison Russell. So open and so loving. And so, I mean, that, because I second what you said, Amethyst, that the emotional connection was so clear. I've never experienced anything like that. And actually, that's one of the memories that is hard for me in some ways, where our children were watching the show for the first time that day in that tent and we all broke down crying at various points. The audience was crying and my daughter had the meltdown of her life right after that set as we were having to go, go talk to the Grammy people and go. And it was because I knew I had this, this dread when we had these two wonderful nannies with us, Miss Molly and Heaven, and they had not gotten a chance to see the show because whenever we were working, they were with the children. And this was a daytime show, it was a festival. So they will watch the show. And part of me had this misgiving and I realized as soon as we started singing Mama's Crying Long, I was like, oh no, like my daughter, hasn't heard this song in full and she catches every lyric. And she can't get up. 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 And she can't come down. You know, and she just, it was intense. The emotional meltdown and it took her two months to talk to me about it. But two months later, she started saying, so, when she was in the tree, she was dead, you know, about the character. I mean, it was like, it was hard. So there was, you know, there's so many layers, emotional layers. I agree with Amethyst and Layla. It was, uh, you know, it was a healing experience. And it was also like highlighting that we still have a ways to go. And I'm just so proud. I'm proud of the work that Newport is doing and that so many of our, our arts organizations, Americana, music community, you know, the work that we're doing now to really make sure that we are hearing and amplifying all voices equally and acknowledging the foundational Black roots of every genre of American song. You know, it's so important. There's been whitewashing and appropriation for too long. And hopefully that will start to change as Black folks feel more welcome in spaces and Asian folks and Indigenous folks and everybody, you know. Diversifying stages and fighting for equality in the music industry is also about making more room for women. And as we discussed in Episode 3, the 2019 festival marked the first all-female headlining set, which was curated by Brandi Carlisle and featured the incredible top-secret surprise guest, Dolly Parton. It was also the debut of The High Women, featuring Brandy, Marin Morris, Natalie Hemby, Amanda Shires, and special guests Cheryl Crow and Yola. Those sets showcased not only the wealth of female talent in music, but also the necessity for the rest of the industry to recognize it. Here's Yola. Obviously, being part of The High Women, we had had this 
conversation as a founding conversation of the high women of like country and its awareness of women was a conversation but across the board and me as a cross-genre artist I really value this kind of focus on making sure that it's not just oh we're inviting anyone who's a woman it's like actually we've curated this because there's plenty to choose from (laughs) and so we're able to curate the bossest ladies in folk and americana and country and you know that's not a that's not a hard find <laughs> you know it really isn't and so that was really important to see i think probably and especially for the country community and that ongoing fight for radio related equality that's that's something that i think we're going to be fighting for a while Like the women from Our Native Daughters, Yola believes in the importance of shedding light on the essential role Black communities and artists have played on all American popular music, as well as the necessity of artists of color like herself, creating and owning space to ensure that as time passes, the musical landscape will only continue to become more inclusive. I used to live with Alison Russell until a month ago. Like we've talked long into the night about the oddness of especially things pertaining to rock and roll and roots and country and the myriad genres that are rooted in music begot of the African diaspora and the absence thereof of artists of colour. And so it seems to be that claiming it is a mission and you have to go into all spaces to take up space. That's just how it works. And so... That's what we're all doing. I told my mother I was going to sing and write songs from age four. And you may have read that she wasn't desperately supportive of it. One of the main reasons was that we were poor. And so there wasn't like any fallback if that didn't work out. And for a lot of people, it doesn't. But also it was because she was aware of colorism and how society leans into the erasure of dark skinned women. She was terrified for me for going into a public space where she knew she experienced hate and that that very narrative erased many women from the public purview, especially if we consider Sister Rosetta Tharp and her creation of the genre rock and roll. And and that's still maybe even being something that is news to people and revelatory, maybe even controversial to some more willful to whitewash types. It's a hard thing to have to navigate. Every day, every day, every day, every day, there are strange things happening every day, every day. This is Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. We'll be right back. Welcome. 
Welcome back to Festival Circuit, Newport Folk. I'm Carmel Holt. So far, we've heard about Newport Folk as a space that has always championed the fight for a more open, empathetic, and just world. Like George Ween told us, that was established in the earliest days of the festival. And as we'll hear, in the very origins of folk music itself. Not from the highly educated and wealthy, but by the lower classes who, especially in America, sang to mobilize workers and bring awareness to the fight for their rights. Here's Colin Malloy of the Decemberists. The vibe of Newport is about diversity and diversity of voices and diversity of faces. I mean, folk music is just music of the people. I think folk music became called folk music because it was distinguished from sort of highbrow or, you know, classical music or Baroque music or music that required a certain amount of education and virtuosity, you know, and a certain context in which to play it, whereas folk music was often, when you think about the first folk revival, like the 30s and 40s, the almanac singers and the weavers. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner and I'm a miner's son. They were basically taking songs that they were learning from the folk, which were often poor and black communities around the South and the West. Similarly, in England, people drawing from what songs were sung around the fireplace in poor houses and workers' houses, in workers' communities. So that's what folk music means to me. It just means music that anybody can play. Like, oh my God, that's three chords in that song. And I know those three chords and I can play that. It was radical in that sense that the English folk revival is a little bit different than the American folk revival. The American folk revival, I think, was born at a time when it was being performed by radicals and radicals were interested in bringing this music from working communities and bringing it to a larger audience. And necessarily because you're pulling it from workers' communities, you're getting a lot of, you know, socialist anthems and union songs. And of course, that was also the bent of that early cadre of folkies like Pete and Woody and folks like that. A union brother and a union sister, a union brother and a union sister. Way over in that union burying ground Where they were playing at picket lines. They were playing these songs at picket lines and, and they were radicals and socialists themselves. Judy Collins was there and she helps paint a picture of not only how radical and diverse Newport folk was back in the day, but also the role that Pete and Woody had in writing some of our most cherished and important protest songs. There has been nothing like it. The diversity was extraordinary. You can go from one set of musical appreciation to another and see how they are connected historically and in terms of the talent and what people do with their ideas, how they start to write songs. You know, we forget in the old days with Newport, we were sort of forgetting that both Pete and Woody started out writing songs. I mean, they were not, they were not playing traditional songs, particularly they were reaching into the current language to write songs to raise money for the union movement. That's what they were doing. And that's what their motto was and their imprint was. If I had a bell, I'd ring it in the morning. I'd ring it in the evening all over this land. 
I'll tell you a funny story. We went to see Pete and Tosha. She was in a wheelchair already, but it was the early part of the year he died. And uh, we went up to the house in, in Beacon. I brought flowers and I brought baklava because Pete had a sweet tooth and he liked baklava. So I brought baklava and flowers and so on. We sat up. They were just finishing their breakfast. It was about 11 o'clock and he had a bowl of oatmeal in front of him. Pete was busy singing me a song that he wanted me to learn and telling me the story of the Peekskill riots with the Ku Klux Klan on the roads and the piles of stones. And uh, Paul Robeson was supposed to be giving a concert. It was harrowing to hear this from the mouths of somebody who was there. And uh, Toshi turned from her wheelchair to him and said, you have to finish your oatmeal before you can have any more of the baklava. <laughs> well, the trans man leader said that Paul would lose his head when 35,000 vets broke up that concert. But let's... With that little story that Judy just shared, it's amazing to think about the fact that Pete Seeger, even in his final year, was as devoted as ever to using music as a tool to fight against prejudice and hate, to organize and rally his friends in the name of love and acceptance. And just as that legacy lives on at Newport, so does his interest in engaging kids in music. In episode two, Jay Sweet told us a bit about the Newport Festival's foundation and its mission to provide music education to youth who have less and less access to it than ever before. It's in the spirit of Pete's belief in the power of music that the income from the Newport Festivals works to ensure that our future will be filled with musicians who use their own voices to make a difference in the world. Here's founder, manager, and creative director for The Glow Management, Martin Anderson. All of the artists we work with, I think, are people who are very aware of the world that they are citizens of. Art can feel sometimes very insular and almost self-serving in certain ways. And so I think that we always are really drawn to ways that we can give back to our communities. And I think with the Newport Foundation, you know, they do so many exciting things. They've given the artists opportunities to every year make a donation on their behalf to an organization that really speaks to them. Both Mountain Man and Phil Cook in different ways have given to like music organizations here in the Triangle, whether it's Girls Rock and Sea, which encourages young women to get involved in playing music and being involved in all aspects of producing live music. How am I doing? Hey, hey. Tweet, 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 tweet. I said, how am I doing? Hey, hey. Geo baby, a show. And then Bump in the Triangle, which is an organization that Phil Cook is on the board of that is here to promote the music of the African diaspora and create access to that in local communities and, and get instruments in kids' hands. And so I think that it's kind of, you know, the icing on the cake that you're able to do all of this amazing stuff. And then on top of it, do something good in your own community and, you know, raise some money. And I think that they've also gotten involved in things outside of the festival, you know, whether it's an artist that we work with wanting to do some sort of charitable thing. I mean, frequently a call is to J Suite to help kind of connect people that could kind of come in and support that vision. And then we've done other really fun things. You know, Phil Cook came and did a day at the uh, Boys and Girls Club, like summer camp of Newport. 2019, last year, we went in, in the fellas set. Brad and I went out to the summer camp and I played a solo set. Phil and Brad Cook. And it was the end of a Friday after at the end of a day of an outside <laughs> camp. And I was like so nervous in a way because I was like, yo, there are like four year olds all the way up to like 17 year olds all sitting on picnic tables like, who is this 
guy who looks like Weird Al, man, walking up here. It's about to do whatever. But the day ended up just being, the set ended up just basically breaking down into me just letting all the kids line up and play my electric guitar, which is what needed to happen. Yeah, That's all that needed to happen, actually. And it's, uh, I don't know. I just, I love that part of that. That's folk. You know what I mean? <laughs> Line up and strum this thing. <laughs> Ain't it sweet? Ain't it sweet? Ain't it sweet to know where one day will be? I think that that is so important that it's not just about commerce and, and getting paid and legacy. It's about bringing the community into music and about bringing music back out to the community and, and really trying to make our world a little bit more like what we want to see. Making the world more what we want to see truly harkens back to the founding ideals of Newport, not just as a festival, but in what it stands for and what it as a community can do. The power and the importance of fighting for and working towards equality and building access to music education and providing a platform for a wide range of voices, including women of color. This leads into the incredibly crucial need for representation, not only in terms of equality, but also how necessary it is to inspire, empower and motivate next generations to see what is possible and add their own voices and further diversify the musical landscape of the future. Here's Amethyst Kia. We've all been in this space for a really long time. So it's like, I found out that it was okay for me to be part of this. And when is everyone else going to figure it out? But the thing is, is like, we've all came across this in various ways and in unique ways that most people just don't think about or have access to. I mean, I learned about this music at a university and there's one of two programs Maybe there's more now, but to be able to even have this opportunity to study this and then it's about, you know, getting people in there to study it. It kind of really came to light to me. I did a podcast recently. One of the hosts said that I never thought I could ever listen to this music because I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel like I could be part of it. But seeing your face with this music. I now feel like I have permission to listen to it. And so we talked about that for a little bit where I experienced the same thing before I fully committed to wanting to study old time music. I was like, do I really want to commit myself to something where I, you know, am not going to be welcomed or belong? But once I read the history and once I saw the Carolina chocolate drops. Those two things combined, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it and I'll face whatever adversity comes my way with this. I've got the knowledge and the history to back it up, even though I shouldn't have to do that because I don't think it's, you know, it shouldn't be a birthright to being able to play the music that you love. But at the very least, if someone wanted to confront me or question me, I would at least have the knowledge to defend myself if I needed to. Right now, there's really like this movement of black artists that are now being pushed to the forefront. I got a message the other day where this black woman found out about our native daughters and she listened to all of our individual projects. And then she finally decided that she'd liked the banjo for years and she finally decided she was gonna buy a banjo, you know, because of seeing us. A representation really matters. And I think with white people, you don't have to think about it because you see yourself everywhere. And so there are some people that they scoff at the idea of diversity and well, we don't need to do that. I'm colorblind. Racism is over. We had our first black president. So why are we all still talking about racism? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you don't get it because you're 
incapable of putting yourself in our shoes. But as time's going on, I'm starting to see like something's definitely happening now that I'm happy to see moving forward. But I still think it's going to be a gradual. (laughs) It'll be a gradual shift. But You know, I'm really happy to see one by one more people are starting to feel accepted in the queer community, too. It's a similar situation. More and more queer artists in Americana and country. And again, that visibility, that representation, it really means a lot. And I'm glad to see it. (laughs) And just as Yola described the feeling of Brandy's all-female headlining set, it is so empowering to experience finding collective support, even with your bandmates. And that, in turn, inspires and strengthens countless others. Here's Layla McCalla. I remember Rhiannon saying like, God, it's just so nice to be part of a group doing this work because we're all doing it individually. To not have to shoulder that and be the lone voice on stage, I think that's a lot of the strength of this band comes from the collective supporting each other and creating the space to talk about these issues, to be ourselves. I really feel like that's kind of why we're at Newport. That's why we did the tour. That's why we made the record. What we felt was that people were very receptive and ready to have the conversation. People were really listening. And I think I cried like every single time we played Kashiba. <laughs> Kashiba, Kashiba, you're free now, you're free now. Have the and not just me like the audience you know it was always about creating that connection and bringing people down to their knees and then lifting them up and you know like (laughs) that's kind of part of the power of this group. Rhiannon Giddens. When you talk about the art and how it can drive things, you know, and how our Native daughters, when it came out, I feel like it just kind of put a shot of awareness into Americana. That's what art is for, you know? And it's like, if we ever forget it, like that's what it's for. It's for that woman who's like, I'm gonna pick up the banjo now because I saw y'all and I'm gonna feel more connected to, you know what I mean? It's like, art is the spark. Raising awareness, empowering and inspiring others a tool for change, social justice, and connection. As Rhiannon Giddens just said, art is the spark. For the Folk family, Newport is much more than simply a weekend gathering to enjoy music. It's also what it represents, a space to bring like-minded people together, a platform for voices that need to be heard, to share ideas, to reconnect with what is important, and to re-energize for the work that still needs to be done, to be inspired by the work of Pete Seeger that continued up to his last days, and the utopia that George and Joyce kick-started over 60 years ago. Here's Jay Sweet. It's the reset button. It is for me. I get into this weird circadian rhythm you know, where I need to be inspired and revitalized and remember what we're doing. I'm pretty sure with the feedback I get is what we're doing is for the audience perspective. I hope that they're getting the same thing we're getting out of it, which is a reset. It's not escapism. It is not about we go there to escape. You know, it's not a leaving reality behind and doing drugs in a field and wearing a daisy chain thing around your head. And, you know, it's not that. It's about being actually the most present you can be and realizing it's okay to feel that you are fighting against injustices because you are. I think it repowers people to go back into the world with a sense of confidence that we're not alone. We are not alone. And as we talked about from the beginning of this series, the idea of folk family is all of us. What it represents is what is possible if we work together and keep pushing and fighting for equality and a more compassionate world. 
And while diversity and inclusion are two popular buzzwords today, we've discovered that they are deep in the DNA of Newport's history, back to its very beginnings. Newport has always strived to surround hate and force it to surrender. And it's up to us to continue the work that George Ween started six decades ago. If Newport can teach us anything, it's the incredible power of community and song. We'll leave the last word to Amethyst Gia. I've never seen so many crying and smiling and laughing faces. It was just such an emotional connection that we had with the audience that was just, I'll never forget it. It was truly amazing. I guess the only thing left to say is I look forward to going back because it was awesome. (laughs) On the next episode of Festival Circuit, Newport Folk, we'll go back to the fort. Take me back. (laughs) <laughs> All right, I'm going to keep it real with you. I cannot wait to go back and play Newport Folk Anything. You want me on the folk, you want me on the jazz, I'll make some new music for it. I just love being there. I just love being in that environment. Once you hear Jay say, good morning, everyone. Welcome to 2021 Newport Folk. That's when you know it's on. It's going to be cool. There's going to be a lot of crying going on. A lot of hugging, hopefully. It's going to be emotional. I'm getting emotional even thinking about it. It's going to be magic. I can actually speak for a group, I think, this year to say we're really excited to be back in Newport. See you at the fort. Join us in August for the final episode of Festival Circuit, recorded live at the 2021 Newport Folk Festival, Folk On. See you at the fort. Festival Circuit Newport Folk is presented by Osiris Media, proud supporter of the Newport Festival's foundation. I'm Carmel Holt. The series is co-written, co-produced, and edited by me and Julian Booker, who is also the series audio engineer. Production assistance from Zach Brogan. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Show logo and art by Mark Dowd. The series theme music is Ruminations Part 3, Afternoon Haze by Stephen Warwick. Thanks to Billy Glasner of the Newport Festivals Foundation for providing archival audio. Additional archival audio provided by the Alan Lomax Collection at the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress, courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. And many thanks to our folk family guests, Amethyst Kia, George Ween, Ben Jaffe, Bob Boylan, Layla McCalla, Rhiannon Giddens, Allison Russell, Yola, Colin Malloy, Judy Collins, Martin Anderson, Phil and Brad Cook, Jay Sweet, Holly Lasick, Jess Wolf, Brittany Howard, Brian Lima, and Allison Pangakis. And with gratitude to Executive Director Jay Sweet for his guidance and support. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. I'm your host, Carmel Holt. See you next time on Festival Circuit. Osiris.